I read comics, show number 43. Is it like that? Is it level down from no, that? No, 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 no. She should be able to read your mind if you're locked in a safe. And she doesn't know who you are. And she doesn't know whether there's someone in there. No. That's what the double-blind test is. That would never work, would it? Because that means she'd never get arrest. That's like... You're making up the rules. You're making up the rules. Oh, no, the thing is, that's what these people do. Oh, no, I have to hold your hand. Oh, I have to... You have to write it down. Well, why? Why do you? It's the same as these mediums that contact the dead. They go, oh, I'm getting someone... Just ask him who he is. Just give us his full name and address. It's ridiculous. I love the fact that these, these dead people give him cryptic clues. Ask him about the uh, toaster. What's your name? What's your name? Can't say my name. Might be an uncle. Just give me your fucking name. So that wasn't me ranting. That was Ricky Gervais. I just had to include that because I thought it was really funny and also true. And on the podcast that he's done, he often rants against stupidity. And I just like the way he kind of captured that particular moment of ranting against psychics and people who say they talk to dead people. In a nutshell, um, there is a little bit of rantage this time. And the other reason I wanted to play that at the beginning is just to... um, mention that I've been listening to a a new podcast that's called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and it's a good skeptical podcast. And I recently listened to an episode that they had done a couple months ago with Neil Adams. So there's the crossover between skepticism and comic books. I love Neil Adams' art. I think he's a wonderful artist. I've been a fan of his since I was aware of his work back in the 70s. He's an incredibly talented guy. Um, One of the preeminent comic book artists. You see his stuff and you go, oh, that's Neil Adams. He's also crazy. He's also really batshit crazy. And he was on this skeptical podcast because they wanted to interview him about these theories that he holds about um, the earth and science. And in listening to him, I was just amazed that he's so crazy. Um, And the interviewers tried to be pretty respectful to him, but I think it was hard for them to hold back their incredulity I will put up the link if you care to go to the website where he talks about his crazy ideas. He basically believes that um, the Earth used to be a lot smaller than it is now, and it's been constantly expanding, and it's hollow on the inside, and that, in fact, all of the planets are expanding and are hollow on the inside, and that the universe is expanding, but not in the way that we normally think of an expanding universe, and that there was no Big Bang, and this leads him as he explores his theory, to conclude that all of science is wrong and that geology is completely wrong and that mountains aren't formed by the tectonic plates subducting and pushing against each other. He thinks all of that is just plain wrong. And he's waiting for the next probe that lands on the moon to prove that the moon really is hollow. I don't think he believes that there are like people living inside the moon or anything, but um, he believes that the Earth is hollow. He believes a lot of other fairly crazy stuff, too. So I was just surprised by this. You know, I was looking at the website. I was like, oh, wow, an interview with Neil Adams. That's going to be interesting. I wonder why they have him on this show. And then I listened to it, and I said, now I know why they had him on this show. And the interesting thing is that he comes off, not only in the interview, but later on um, there was an email exchange posted at the forum for this podcast between him and the uh, host. And... He really comes off like a nut. 
not just that his theories are insane and don't make any sense, but the way he expresses them is sort of incoherent and full of misspellings and weird punctuation and half-thought-out ideas that don't really connect to each other. You know, it's the kind of stuff that you would expect to find... I, like in New York City, I remember seeing stuff like this, you know, these single-spaced pages of typewritten stuff that were stapled to telephone poles. And you'd look at that and go, wow, that person's nuts. So anyway, I just thought it was kind of a civic duty to tell you all that Neil Adams, when it comes to science, is a crazy guy. Boy, can he draw, though. What a talented guy. What an artist. Okay, so that was the first item on the list. Uh, let's see, I want to mention a couple other things before I forget. Uh, I, I'm going to go to WonderCon, so if anybody else is going to WonderCon, which is in like a month at this point, um, let me know, and maybe we can meet up and <clears throat> have a beer or something, but yeah, I'm definitely going to go to WonderCon. Of course, they haven't had any of the programming stuff written down yet, so I don't know what's happening. There have been some rumblings about uh, perhaps another podcast panel, and if it happens, I'll probably be there for that. So, yes, WonderCon, San Francisco, March, beginning of March, the first weekend in March. The weather should be really miserable, so bring your boots and your raincoat. I thought a lot about talking more about the Minx line coming out from D.C., and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, everybody in the world has had their say at this point. And I think I said before, I think it's a great idea that they're trying something different, and they're trying to bring more women creators into it, although there aren't that many, there are some, um, and try to produce something that's different from what they do. But first of all, Minx is a stupid name because I, I think that it has too many sexual overtones in a bad way. Um, and it also has some weird negativity in that, um, you know, a, a minx is a a girl, a girl, not a woman. You don't hear minx too often referred to, like, say, a 50-year-old woman as a minx unless you're trying to insult her by claiming that she's acting a lot younger than she is. So that's a double-edged sword. But um, kind of a, a, a girl who will use her sexuality to get what she wants, um, who will flirt without any intention of following it through. And I don't think that's really very good. Um, but all, all of that aside, you know, thank you for trying to make a comic line that's more appealing to girls, but why don't you just tone down the fucking sexism and horrible stuff in your regular comics at the same time? You know? Like, follow through on that, okay? I think that would help a lot. Now, a couple of follow-up things. Um... I got an, a bunch of interesting comments about the V for Vendetta show. That was a month ago. It seems like a year ago. Um, and I wanted to just share that with you all. So um, one person from England who goes by the handle of um, Medic UT said, um, one of the English things which often gets missed is that most of this book first appeared in the early 80s in a British comic called Warrior. Like most British comics, this was the large format A4 size, if you know anything about English Stationary. It's a little bigger than American, so it's 8 and a quarter by 11.5. It was also in black and white. When DC picked it up for the American publication, the artwork, the artwork was shrunk down to a more conventional U.S. comic book size, and it was colored. I think this explains why a lot of reviews criticize the lettering and the artwork on the faces. It was much easier to read the dialogue and tell the characters apart when the art, when it's, when it, was seen in its original size. I think they did a good job on the coloring, but it still detracts slightly from the impact of Lloyd's black and white work. 
And I didn't know that. I really did not know that it was only black and white and that it was colored when it became um, Americanized. So that's an interesting thing. I still do like the, the coloring, though, the shading and the wash of color that's used. Um, but I can see how it might have been easier to read when it was a larger size format, even slightly larger. Um, the other stuff I said about not being able to tell some of the characters apart and that whole thing about um, Evie's hair changing dramatically still stands. And I stand by that criticism. And I wanted to respond to somebody else who said, I did think it was a bit hypocritical to go on about stereotypes of women as whores and harlots and how that just perpetrates the stereotype, but the fat old white guy stereotype is perfectly acceptable. I I don't think I was clear enough about that, so I want to be really, really clear. Um, I think that um, Alan Moore was making a point by having all of the main male characters look fairly interchangeable and that it was the fat old white guys who were in charge of the government because I think he realizes that that's the case and that is a reflection of reality. Of course, they were all white because in that version of Britain, all the non-white people had already been put into concentration camps and mostly killed, I guess. So there just weren't any non-white people around and women were very much in subservient roles in that society, so they're not going to be running anything. So that's all that's left. The, the thing that I was trying to say, and I don't think I said it clearly enough, was when V goes on this whole thing about how um, justice has been unfaithful to him, it's very different when he's saying it than when one of the other characters is saying it, or when Alan Moore, as the omniscient creator, is showing you what this society is. I think V as a character has been set up in a way that when he speaks... We're supposed to believe that what's coming out of his mouth is true. So when V is talking, we are listening and and saying, okay, this is the one character who's not lying to me. Everybody else is lying, but V is not lying. So when V says that Justice is a harlot and goes on this long extended metaphor about how he's been betrayed by a woman because women do that sort of thing, that really um, hits home much more than just the general attitude towards women that you see throughout because that's part of the society. But when V says that it has a different meaning, and I think that that's what bothered me, is V rescues Evie. He's the one who is treating her like an equal. He's not treating her like um, a, a worthless piece of sex. He's treating her like someone who can take his place. So to hear him go on about how awful justice the woman is, that cuts in a, a very different way. So that's what I was trying to say. So I, I hope that that is clearer now. Um, let me also read something. So just jumping around to a totally different subject, uh, I'm still sort of slothfully investigating this idea of comic book demographics. And I heard from um, a listener, um, I had asked her if, because of a post she had made somewhere else, if she could shed any light on this. And this is what she replied. So this is interesting, and I think this is, could be fruitful. She says, I can pull up information on book sales um, because she's got access to a database that has this kind of stuff. So we're talking about point of sale systems. When you buy something at Barnes & Noble or at Borders or in some cases at your local comic book store, they scan it and that information immediately goes into some kind of database and supposedly that's how bestseller lists are generated from actual sales. She says, most, most comic book stores do not have a point of sale system. So there's not a way to track that data. Point-of-sale systems are great, but they cost about $5,000, and there's not one specifically designed for comic books. Um, 
DC, Marvel, and all of them think there is a small market of women buying comics, but they can't prove it. Um, she says that um, the, the one place that you could get information is on trade paperback sales, which are books, rather than the actual issues. And I think that's really interesting, and I'm sure everybody is aware of the many discussions going on about whether comic books, that is individual monthly or, or however often they come out, issues, are eventually going to go away and everything is just going to be a trade paperback. And, and that could happen. The trend seems to be in that direction. When I was interviewing Rory, the um, owner of Comic Relief, he was pointing out to me that he has more trades and books than anything else in the whole store. So I think one could make a good case that you could collect information on trade paperback sales much more easily than you could on individual comic book sales. So maybe there is some data to be gathered from there, and maybe we could actually get some demographic information on um, the customers because when a book gets scanned and your information is attached to it, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. Now, I still think it wouldn't be that hard for someone to take a subscription database from a place like DC or Marvel and run it and just look at the first names and make a really rough and ready calculation um, based on that. I, I think about this from time to time, and I read all of the comic book blogger entries um, I'm happy to say that when Fangirl's Attack is sort of back in full swing now, there was a little hiatus around the holidays, but now it's back. And there have been a lot of stories about what it's like to be a woman in a comic book store. And I see more and more women, and other people too, I mean men, saying that, um, yeah, there are women in comic book stores. So I just feel like it's increasing, and the number of women reading comic books is increasing or becoming more visible. So I, I still cannot understand why this information is not valuable or is not treated as valuable to comic book publishers because it's a business. It's art, but it's also a business. And I keep thinking that if you change the editorial slightly so that all the women characters weren't raped and killed, and if you change the art slightly so that all the women were not looking like strippers, and had their tits, giant inflatable tits, that were falling out all over the place, maybe you would lose the 0.257% of your reading audience who buys it only for that, um, and you would gain some actual larger percentage of women, and maybe men too, who are offended by that kind of stuff and just don't want to read it. But they do want to read the stories, so if you just made it a little bit better you might gain a whole new audience and people wouldn't be talking so much about the death of comic books. You know, it's just a thought. It's a business and you should think about that kind of stuff when you're running a business and not just gratifying your own fanboy needs. So I'm going to continue to pursue this. Um, I just haven't had time to pursue it really aggressively, but I really appreciate the people who have been writing and giving me um, suggestions and information, just like this listener did. So I think all that stuff is really, really good. Okay, um, let me take a little break here and listen to some of that fabulous Ginger Mayerson music. And then, um, yes, there will be a little bit of rantage and some actual reviews, because I did read some stuff, some good and some bad. So uh, hang on. We'll be right back. <laughs>
So these are not things that I'm going to particularly enjoy talking about, but I just feel like I have to say it. So <laughs> I'm like having to force myself to do this. So the subject of today's rant is Adam Hughes. Um, I don't know who I don't know anything about Adam Hughes other than that he's a comic book artist. Maybe he's a very nice and decent man. He probably has a lovely family and you know picks up litter in the street wherever he goes. But I got to say, I really don't like his art. So here are two examples of things I don't like. Number one, which I think everybody has seen now because it came out right at the end of the year, was his design for um, the the Emma Frost thing, the the little figurine, the statue from, uh, you know, Sideshow here. And it was based on a design that he drew and... The actual figurine is a fairly faithful representation, although it, it differs in one important way. The drawing is bad enough, but the figurine is a horrible. And, I mean, you know that I don't really like Emma Frost as a character. I, I find her pretty much unlikable. Maybe that's the point. I don't know. And I, I find the fact that um, all of the men that she comes in contact with immediately just have to fuck her and, you know, have just fall apart and she has this sexual power and every man wants her and she's not, in my eyes, really very sexy at all. So Adam Hughes has drawn her um, quite unlike the way Emma Frost is portrayed. That is, um, she's in a, a very submissive, kind of modelish pose and um, she's taking off her, I don't know, cloak thing, whatever it's supposed to be giving a very come-hither look to the supposed purchaser, which would be a man. I'm guessing it would be a man. And when they made this into a figurine, um, they made her tits about four times as big as he drew them, to the point where they look comical. I'm looking at this thing right now, and they really... It looks like she's wearing... Well, she's supposed to be wearing a corset, I guess. Um, that's not really how corsets work, but, you know, whatever. Um... And, and they're like water balloons, giant water balloons that are up in the front. They don't even look like they're part of her body. That's how bad they are. They just look like he made this, they made the model and then they took balls of clay or whatever. They, they rolled them around in their hands like you're making a meatball and they just stuffed them in the front. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it is really laughable. The fact that this is a child's toy, presumably, I mean, it is a, a, a collectible figurine, is a little offensive. I mean, is this the kind of thing you're going to buy for your kids? I don't think so. And if it's really a figurine for adult or teenage guys who are buying it, they should totally be selling it with, you know, a bottle of hand cream and a box of tissues. Why not just come out and admit it that this is jack-off material? This is not meant to represent art or something you're going to put on your shelf. And, you know, how all your friends come through and go, Wow, look at that porny figure you've got there. What a whore. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm just thinking that this was not a, a good thing to do. And a lot of people found it that way also. I don't buy that kind of stuff, so it doesn't really matter to me. But, man, is that awful. Okay. Now, here's the other thing. I, I saw this picture um, a couple of months ago, and it made me really, really angry at the time. And I had to think a lot about why it was making me angry. And so I think I, I understand it now, and I want to be really careful about the way I say this. So 
This is a picture that was drawn by Adam Hughes. Um, I think it was a sketch he must have done at a convention for someone because it's, it's, it looks like a con sketch. And um, it really, really, really bothers me. Now, let me be really clear. I'm not saying Adam Hughes can't draw whatever he wants to draw. If people request drawings for him at cons, of course he should be able to do anything he wants to do. I'm not trying to step on his toes. I just want to explain why this particular image upsets me and angers me so much. And I don't think I'm the only person who would feel that way. I don't think I'm the only woman who would feel that way. So let me say, this is me saying it. It's a drawing of Wonder Woman. And she's naked except for she's wearing um, a G-string, which has the um, stars on the front of it, and her gauntlets and her little thing, her tiara thing. And she's got her arms over her head in sort of a semi-bondage pose. And coming around from behind her are two hands. They're Green Lantern's hands, you can tell, because it's got white gloves and there's a ring, power ring. And the hands are covering her nipples and kind of squishing her breasts together. This is a jack-off picture, um, and the reason it bothers me so much is because even though I'm not the world's biggest Wonder Woman fan, I, I recognize her significance. I recognize what she is supposed to represent, and, you know, the guy, Marston aside, you know, she is a symbol of a strong woman. She is a symbol of a woman who is not married to anybody, is not beholden to a man who exists on her own and does pretty much what she wants coming from a society of women. You know, she's one of the big three with Superman and Batman. And she represents the strength of women. And this pose takes Wonder Woman, the strongest woman in the world, you know, representation of all that is supposed to be good, and puts her into a submissive, bondage-like, porn star pose with a man's hands grabbing and holding on to her breasts. <laughs> wow, that really upsets me. That's like taking, you know, an icon, something that I think is really important, and turning it into a piece of, um, you know, throwaway porn to be used for someone else's pleasure. So that's Wonder Woman right here. Here she is being used by a man for a man. Um, drawn by a man for another man for the enjoyment of seeing her in this submissive pose, this degrading pose, I would even say, um, because she doesn't, her facial expression is completely blank. She doesn't look like she's enjoying this. She doesn't look like she's having fun. She doesn't look like this is all a big joke. She looks completely and totally expressionless here. And if it's not Wonder Woman, and if it's just some model that's dressed up as Wonder Woman, that says something there, too, that that's what Wonder Woman's image is for. That's, that's the way she's perceived, as just um, a, a woman who needs to be naked so men can see her and fantasize about fucking her and doing other things to her and, you know, making her be submissive to them um, and being there for their pleasure, because that's what this image really portrays. Um, and, and that really, really, really bothers me. And I am wondering about the person who this was drawn for. I'm wondering about what Adam Hughes thinks when he draws this. I'm wondering what other people think when they see stuff like this. Um, I, I think it's a really... I think it could be a bad thing. And let me be really clear again in saying, this bothers me. And... I don't know how other people would feel about this. 
Um, but it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. And I thought about different responses to this. Um, and I think one response that I'm actually um, giving a lot of thought to is um, taking a male superhero and essentially having the same picture done and seeing what kind of response we get to that. And I don't know, maybe it's Batman. Maybe it's Batman who's naked <clears throat> with his arms over his head with a really blank expression on his face, um, being submissive in the same submissive pose, um, with, I don't know, somebody's hand holding his dick. How about, how would that be? So I'm just gonna, you know, it, it's like, just, would that be as offensive to some people as this is offensive to me? I don't know, but it's not the kind of thing. I don't think that sketch of Batman naked with someone's arm coming around from the back on his cock would be the sort of thing that you could get an artist to draw for you at a convention. And if I'm wrong about that, please tell me who would draw me that picture because I'd really like to know about it. So that's my rantage on this. And like I said, it's really not making me happy to talk about this, so I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, I will talk about something that was actually pretty interesting, and I got myself a little bit of an education whilst reading this book. This is a trade paperback, DC. It's the Justice Society, Volume 1. So this collects the comic books that came out um, in the late 70s, written by Paul Levitz and Jerry Conway, and um, the artists were Joe Staten, Keith Giffen, of course, Wally Wood, and Rick Estrada. And Wally Wood did some of the inking, as well as Bob Layton. So I never read any of this stuff ever. Um, of course, I had read the you know JLA stuff, but I never really knew about Justice Society. And of course, I knew about Power Girl just from all the stuff that I've seen written about her. But I, I didn't really understand where she came from or anything. So it was pretty cool to see this. Now, the first thing about these comics that I thought was weird is that they're written in this incredibly um, breathless, like a um, 30s... Um, serial style where the narrator is constantly talking to the reader like I'm just picking a page at random hold everything you're probably wondering why the title of this book is Super Squad when obviously it's about the JSA well we'll do better than tell you why we're going to show you why ladies and gentlemen reintroducing the Star Spangled Kid and every sentence ends with an um, exclamation point from the narration there's a lot of jumping back and forth between characters, you know. Meanwhile, we're going to leave our heroes stranded in this terrible situation while we jump over here. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Um, but it, it's great superhero fun stuff. It, it's not, for me, quite as cracktastic as the Legion stuff from this, the late 60s, because that was totally weird. Um, but this is weird enough in its own way. And we get, in you know, like num- issue number two, um, Power Girl, who shows up in her wacky outfit. And... Um, I really wasn't sure what to think about Power Girl because I see the way that she's been drawn and, and the way her character has been abused over time and given all these different stories. But I gotta say, I pretty much like her in here. Um, she really is like pretty tough and doesn't take shit. And um, the thing I really like about her is that she punches stuff all the time. And one of the reasons that I loved Night Girl in the Legion of the Substitute Heroes is that when she's got her powers, all she does is punch shit. She punches rocks, she punches spaceships, she punches her way through steel walls, she punches everything. I think it's so cool. And Power Girl punches shit all over the place. And in fact, in one of these stories, 
Um, she and two of the guys are trapped in a, a big impenetrable box. And by God, she manages to punch her way out of it. And they're like, oh God, she punched her way out of it. Whoops, better be nicer to her. So that I thought was pretty cool. Um, I was interested to see that her costume actually changes um, in these issues anyway. You know, the very first time she appears, she's got that little peekaboo window in the front. And then in the later issues, the window is gone. And it's just an all-white costume. So that's kind of cool. Um, I'm glad to see that she's drawn as muscular as she is. She's not a tiny little skinny stick figure with giant inflatable tits. She actually looks like she should be doing what she's doing. She's really strong and she's got big biceps and big arms. And there were at least a couple panels in here that I thought were really well drawn when they're showing her in action um, where she's punching shit and doing everything and she's posed like an action hero. She's not. She doesn't have the hip tilt thing going on. She's not posing for the camera like a model. She's not, you know, trying to keep her hair from going in her eyes. She really just looks like an action figure, like the way a male superhero would be drawn. And I think that's great, and I wish that they had kept that up. So I like Power Girl. I think she's pretty cool. Um, it was nice to be introduced to the rest of these characters, like uh, Dr. Midnight, and um, to see Hawkman in action doing his thing, and to see a different Superman and a slightly different um, Batman, and then uh, to kind of see them all coming together and, and, you know, how this all worked out. So I really enjoyed this book. It was cool. Um, I'm not sure that I'll buy any more, but I really like getting this little slice of history. And, you know, the art's beautiful. This, in particular, this um, collection looks fantastic. They did a great job um, bringing the color back to life, just making it look really, really fresh. So I'm, I'm real happy about that. So um, thanks, Tony. Thanks for sending it. I really enjoyed it. Um, something else that I didn't quite enjoy, and maybe it's because I don't get it, and I worry about that sometimes, that I'm like too old to enjoy stuff anymore, that I just don't get things, and there are other people younger than me who would pick up a book like this and go, wow, this is great. Um, and it's called A Gregory Treasury, and it's volume one, and it's by Mark Hempel, and this actually was also put out by DC. Um, and I had never heard of this before. And I thought it looked interesting because it looks like an indie thing. Um, and it's a series of little stories about a kid named Gregory who uh, is in a straitjacket in a mental institution. And he obviously has some terrible thing wrong with him because he can't really talk except to say, I, Gregory, and a few other things. And... Um, it's the story kind of of his life in the mental institution and Herman the rat that he makes friends with and Herman the vermin, that is, and then um, the mouse who eventually joins them. And it's very surrealistic and strange and um, obviously commentary on the way we treat mentally ill people and disabled people, which I totally appreciate. But I don't know. It, I <laughs> Just the concept puts me off a little bit, you know, Thinking about a little kid in a straitjacket in a cell that doesn't have any furniture and just a barred window, <laughs> it, it, it really sort of bothers me. So it's very hard for me to get past that to kind of see some of the, the humor that's in here. Although I understand that it is humor and I understand that there are jokes. It's not making me laugh. Um, the art's really interesting. It's uh, all black and white. 
And there's a lot of stuff crammed onto the pages. And um, Jeffrey himself looks a little like Invader Zim. And I don't know if that's intentional or not. He's got a big triangular head. Um, and it's there's a lot of um, interesting things going on in the background. And the adults are all drawn sort of very menacingly. Um, and some nice detail in the shots where Gregory's having... Um, sort of a, a fantasy. There's a long sequence at the end where Herman, the vermin, the rat, actually has a long fantasy sequence um, that's kind of cool. It's like he's having an LSD trip or something. Um, and Herman keeps getting squashed and being reincarnated as yet another rat, so he never quite makes it up the, the path any further than that because of the kind of rat that he is. Um, so I, I think that this is really interesting. You know, now that I'm looking at the art a little bit more, it, it sort of has a, a Sergio Aragonese feel to it in some ways. Um, so I have to say, this just did not grab me. It did not get me. And, like, I'm looking at the back of it, and I see that there are lots of, uh, you know, praise for this and people who, who love it, people who um, should know. And I guess... Like I said, I think I'm just missing something. So maybe somebody can explain to me why Gregory is so good and why it's funny, if it's funny. Because I, I would kind of like to be clued in, but it really just wasn't my bag. So let me wrap this up um, by talking a little bit about Lost Girls. Now, I haven't finished it yet, but I did read the first book in the beautiful, beautiful um, hardcover set that I got as a gift. And... Um, I wasn't sure what to think. I think I mentioned before that I had actually um, seen a bunch of it at Scans Daily, and it was the Dorothy story where she's thinking about um, telling the story about what happened on the farm in Kansas. And I wasn't real impressed with it. Um, and I think that now having read the first book, which introduces all the characters and gives a little bit of backstory, that might be the weakest part of it, actually. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, why does Dorothy have red hair anyway? I don't really understand that because in the Oz books, she's blonde. She's very blonde and she's also younger. Um, you know, in the original books, she's probably supposed to be maybe 10 or 11 years old. Um, and she had blonde hair. But I know why she has red hair here, actually. It's because whenever you have a story that has three hot women, they all have to have different color hair. So one has to be blonde, one has to be brunette, and one has to be a redhead. Um, so you get all the flavors. And I'm pretty sure that this is a rule. I don't think it's a rule for men, but I'm pretty sure it's a rule for women. So remember that. If you ever have a scene where you have to introduce three hot women characters, they all have to have different hair color. Just like in The Witches of Eastwick, for example. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that um, as, as I was trying to come up with examples. And it's even in Love and Rockets with Luba and her two sisters. Luba has black hair. Um... Petra has blonde hair, and um, Fritz has kind of reddish hair, even though it's dark. When you see colored pictures of her, her hair is definitely more reddish. So, yeah, there's something about that. Anyway, Dorothy has red hair, and that bugs me, because she shouldn't have red hair. She should have blonde hair. Um, and also, I don't like the way she talks. People from Kansas, I don't think, talk like they're from, you know the deepest parts of the South are from Texas or something. Her speech patterns just seem wrong to me. Um, and this is having read the Oz books, like all of them. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the way um, L. Frank Baum wanted her to talk. And if you think about the way people 
or, or children would talk at that time, especially a girl like Dorothy who, you know, was supposed to be smart and went to school and when she was in Oz was um, usually on her best behavior, I, I would think. Her speech patterns, from, from what I remember, uh, don't really match the way she's meant, made to talk here. So anyway, just minor quibbles, but I think that that's what bugged me about the Scans Daily stuff was that I didn't really dig the Dorothy stuff. However, having now seen the other stuff, the Wendy stuff and the Alice stuff, I like that much more. And I think the whole setup to this is really interesting. Um, And I like the fact, this surprised me in a big way because the Dorothy story was so centered on her fucking men that almost the whole first book, which is the setup of how these three women come to meet, hardly has any men in it at all. And that's really refreshing. I like that. I think that's great. There's a lot of women masturbating. There's a lot of women having sex with each other. There's a lot of sexy stuff that's about the women. But the men aren't really present in it. Um, Again, it's with Dorothy. Dorothy has a one-off with some guy in the garden, um, which sort of kind of didn't seem realistic to me. Whatever. It's a very short scene. It goes by pretty quickly. But I, I felt like... The stuff with Alice um, and um, when she's talking about... I mean, Alice is clearly a lesbian here. And Dorothy gets talked into um, becoming bisexual pretty quickly under the influence of some opium. So that's sort of interesting. Um, And then the Wendy stuff I thought was really kind of strange. Um, And yeah, I guess it borders on child pornography, but not really. Um, and the fact that it came to me as I'm reading it, I was almost laughing out loud because what happens, of course, is that Wendy ends up fucking Peter, Peter Pan, right? Peter Pan has a dick and she has sex with him. And I was like, oh, I get it. Alan Moore's writing slash fan fiction. That's what he's doing. He's writing fan fiction. And that's what this whole book is about is Alan Moore deciding that he's going to write fan fiction, um, sexy fan fiction slash fan fiction, all kinds of fan fiction pairings. And hey, I am all in support of that. I read fan fiction. I write fan fiction. I think that's the point of fan fiction is to take characters that you love and that you're familiar with and put them in new situations where you get to make them do what you want them to do. And in most people's cases, that's to have sex because we just don't see enough sex. Um, and we don't see enough of, of our the characters that we love having sex, or having sex with the people that we think they should be having sex with. Hence, the millions upon billions of uncounted um, slash stories with Kirk and Spock. You know, they should be fucking each other. Kirk can have all those other women, but he really should be fucking Spock. That's the way that goes. And that's why people write all the regular fan fiction. That's why there are so many Mulder Scully stories, you know. People want to see that sexual relationship. They want to see those characters in in a sexual situation. So that's what this is about. So now it becomes very clear to me what this all is. And, you know, all, all people saying about it pushing boundaries and all these taboos. Well, whatever, you know. I'm, I'm not seeing anything that's squicking me yet, so I'll tell you if there's anything that squicks me. Like I said, I've only read the first book, so I don't know what's going to happen. But um, I was sort of pleasantly surprised by all things. And I think, as I mentioned before, the art is beautiful. It is really, really beautiful. The colors are just gorgeous. The drawings are, are great. So it is really a visual treat. And I love the fact that it comes in these giant hardcover volumes on 
printed on this, you know, just beautiful deluxe glossy paper. It's really nice to have it and to hold it. Um, that said, if you have copies of it, I noticed that the fronts of the volumes have an illustration on it, which is very um, okay. And then you turn it over and it's really obscene. So you have to be careful if you leave those around. Someone might look at the front and go, oh, look, what a quaint sort of Victorian story. And then they turn it over and it's like rampant Kama Sutra sex happening. So, so far, really liking Lost Girls, and I will definitely um, talk more about that. I, I seem to be in Alan Moore's synchronicity right now because I did V for Vendetta last week. I'm reading this now, and um, there's a bookstore that's closing down the street from where I work, and I popped in there to see if I could pick up anything cheap, and lo and behold, I got the two volumes of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I had never really thought about purchasing, but there they were, and they were half off, and I thought, well... I might as well go ahead and get them. So that's on my list of things. In addition to all the other stuff that I've got. So um, let me wrap this up by saying you should all go listen to more of Ginger Mayerson's music because it's wonderful. You should all go over to um, the Lincoln Heights Literary Society to read the reviews that are there. Um, You should all go to Comic Relief in Berkeley, the only comic book store that matters, and spend lots and lots and lots of money there. Comic Relief will, of course, be at WonderCon. So if you're going to WonderCon, please stop by the Comic Relief booth and buy lots of stuff there. We love Comic Relief. It really is the only comic book store that matters. And I think to close up this show, I am going to play some music that I got this week, which... um, I really like, and I'm guessing that this is the kind of music that some people who are listening are going to absolutely love, and the rest of you are all really going to hate. But you know what? That's too bad, because I just feel like playing it. So um, I'm going to try very hard to make the next show be sooner than this show. I apologize. My life just gets in the way of doing it, but I'm always there. I'm reading comments, and thank you so much for all the email that you send. I really appreciate it, and I read everything, even if I don't always respond to everything as promptly as I should. So, until next time, dig this. Yesterday, my life was in ruin. Now, today, Got a feeling I should be doing all right. Doing all right. Where will I be this time tomorrow? Jump for joy and sinking in song. Time in all the world